Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charthus. A little less than five years ago, an Indian woman living in Dallas, Texas, published a recipe on her website. The recipe was for Instant Pot Keto Indian Butter Chicken. It has this status as a kind of quintessential Indian dish. It's really a restaurant dish. It's not a. It's not an everyday householdy dish. People, even if my mom is cooking butter chicken, she's saying, "Oh, I'd love, I'd love to make a restaurant style dish today. Let me make some butter chicken." You know. That's Sucharita Kanjilal, a PhD candidate at the University of California in Los Angeles, talking to me from her home in Mumbai. And for those of you who don't know butter chicken. It's got a creamy tomato-based sauce. It's tomatoes, butter, and cream. And in it, you put chunks of, of chicken. And the kind of chicken that's usually put in it is chicken that's been grilled beforehand in a tandoor. Two things about butter chicken struck Sucharita Kanjilal as worthy of study. First, the butter chicken lady's recipe for butter chicken was hailed as supremely authentic and quintessentially Indian. And... That's odd, because the original recipe for butter chicken is less than 100 years old, and the tomato is a very recent addition to the list of authentic Indian ingredients. Tomatoes and recipes are both pretty new in India. That prompted Sucharita to ask what tomatoes in Indian recipes tell us about taste, resulting in a paper in a recent issue of Gastronomica. Butter chicken, like all newly invented dishes, has its own origin story, or stories. The prevailing story, let's say, with butter chicken, is that it was created by this partition refugee, the partition of India and Pakistan. There was a man named Kundalal Gujral who lived at, that, at the time in Pakistan, and then he moves to India, to Delhi, as a refugee, and he, he ran this tandoori shop. Uh, and one day he served this dish to someone who thought it was too dry and he decided what can I, I can whip up a kind of sauce to go with it and he takes, you know, um, uh, stewed tomatoes and mixes it in with some butter and cream, puts his tandoori chicken into it and the customers are really happy and this kind of sparks an iconic dish which becomes almost synonymous with Indian food in some uh, in some context. This happens in a in a restaurant in Delhi called Moti Mahal, which is, again, a, a popular, a very popular restaurant. If you go there, they will say that we are the ones who invented butter chicken. So that's the history of butter chicken accounted for. Chef throws together a sauce of tomatoes, butter, and cream, and ladles it over his tandoori chicken. What about the history of the butter chicken lady? She's an Indian food blogger, who creates or produces this recipe for butter chicken, and specifically to make butter chicken in the instant pot, is still extremely popular, but it really had a cultural moment, you know, um, say five or six years ago. Uh, the story becomes curious because she, not only is it that a dish has made this lady from Dallas really famous, but the lady from Dallas is, is making a claim to a kind of authentically Indian dish, but the claim of authenticity, of course, um, it's not an it's not an untrue claim, but it's a claim that, depending on when you're thinking 
off as the starting point for a certain cuisine can be contested in, in other interesting ways. And so the question that I sought out to answer was, how did an Indian blogger from Dallas become, you know, kind of the iconic person in the story of a dish that's not even 100 years old, but seems to represent an entire cuisine? So we've got a newish recipe in a newish kind of cooking apparatus sweeping the world and making claims of authenticity, which, as Sucharita politely put it, could be considered contested, all of which set her thinking. How do tastes change? So it was specifically trying to think about changing tastes uh, in the face of a lot of scholarship, which is very much about how tastes are maintained. So a lot of the scholarship that exists is about how you know, high taste in music or how high taste in food is kind of reinforced and people are forced to, 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 you know, differentiate between good and bad taste. But the question of taste changing sometimes gets lost in that. Um, and one of the things that came to mind for me as someone who, you know, has studied a lot of old cookbooks uh, and changing tastes more generally in India, the immediate example that came to mind was, was the tomato. Because it's simultaneously very new in Indian cuisine, but very predominantly used. It's a great example, I think, of something, even though it hasn't had a long history here, it became very widespread in its use very quickly. So what do you think accounted for it becoming so widespread so quickly? In, in my understanding, it was a combination of economic reasons, political reasons, and also social reasons. So the economic reasons was primarily after colonialism and a lot of the new world crops that were brought into India to other parts of Asia, like potatoes, chilies, um, and tomatoes. Um, they became really popular in these places because they were easy to grow. The tomato took the longest time because for the longest time people thought it was poisonous and so they wouldn't eat it. But eventually, when they learned to grow tomatoes in Europe and then through European colonial powers in places like India, they found that tomatoes actually grow quite are, are easy to grow as a crop. And so there was a lot of geographical and, and economic reasons to grow it because it was a very viable crop. Something being a viable crop or, or economically profitable doesn't always ensure that people will eat it. Okay, what's needed to make something that's economically viable become socially desirable as well? Right. Uh, with the tomato and in the, in the, you know, this happens in the early 20th century in India, it's coinciding with the, with the discovery of vitamin C. There's a shift in thinking of nutrition um, towards these kinds of micronutrients. And so people start to think about uh, and start to learn about which kinds of foods are healthy and contain certain kinds of vitamins. And vitamin C um, becomes a really important part of that conversation. And so tomatoes are not then sold to people uh, by the state agricultural you know, departments, which are also trying to promote their growth generally as a form of agriculture. Uh, they start getting publicized uh, in agricultural texts, in magazines, in cookbooks as this thing contains a lot of vitamin C. It's really healthy. Uh, so then we start to think about why the discourse of dietary health became important in India in the 1930s and 40s. And so this is around the time that the Indian freedom movement or freedom struggle is taking place against the British colonial government. And 
in the, in this kind of anxiety to produce a new nation, there's a lot of discourse about producing healthy citizens for a new nation. And then finally, there's the kind of social cultural aspect, which is um, there's still a number number of local cultural norms around what what counts as something edible, what counts as something delicious, what counts as something that will not offend anyone. Um, and so in Indian cuisine, historically, in many different regions of India, and Indian cuisine, of course, is a very complex thing, in those regions, there's been a strong emphasis on having a sour ingredient in the foods that you're making. And depending on which part of the country you go to, that could be tamarind, that could be raw mangoes, it could be uh, a kind of mangosteen known as kokum. And because tomatoes are sour, they, they get adapted into a very local understanding of a desirable food. Now, you say that the tomato was introduced by the British in India. To what extent... Did that make it a sort of aspirational, a high-taste food? Yeah, I think that it's it's been a complicated story of, of what gets adopted as a high-taste aspirational food and what is seen as too foreign or too much of a breach in what is, you know, a kind of authentic, with all its trappings, authentic food. So when you look at the evidence that I was using to make some of these things were old agricultural manuals and, and cookbooks. You can see, for instance, in the earlier Indian cookbooks, the tomato is is described as an English vegetable and it's described as something certainly to aspire to if you're going to make an English salad or if you're going to host a dinner party and this is like a fancy, interesting ingredient, but it's something that only rich people can do. But I think that the spread of the tomato was more about it being grown locally at a really large scale, and which drove prices down, rather than a kind of large-scale aspiration towards high taste. So local people could easily obtain tomatoes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. I mean, of course, even now, it's not the. It's still not the cheapest food that you could buy, right? Uh, so there's certainly sections of, of the population that still probably can't afford tomatoes very often or too much. Uh, but, also, but also because tomatoes are easily preserved and canned and pickled, uh, people still, even if they won't buy a fresh tomato, might buy tomato ketchup or tomato pickles. Yeah. It isn't just the tomato that's new. Even before colonialism, the only texts about food in India were either scholarly treatises in Sanskrit, which were mostly about ritual and medicinal aspects, or royal records of feasts and dishes. Neither of these were available to ordinary people. When the British came, um, the British and, and also the Portuguese before them uh, brought certain kinds of printing technology, of course the printing press, uh, which then... Indian communities started also adopting to produce a range of local print materials, whether that was, uh, you know, vernacular newspapers or journals or magazines. And the recipes that were being written, like the the kind of new format of recipes that we know of, you know, like a list of ingredients, a set of methods, uh, those were coming out in, in British cookbooks of the time. And then Indian, um, Indian print media that was 
was forming kind of in conjunction and through and outside of, of British printing presses, uh, started to also produce recipes in the same way. But you see that happening in the kind of late 1800s uh, in terms of Indian cookbooks written by Indians. There were, before that, a bunch of Indian cookbooks written by British officers and their wives, uh, which had a combination of you know, how, okay, I'm in this place, which is very alien to me. How do I cook a British dish in this place? But also, what what are the locals eating? It's kind of interesting. Let me write down some recipes. Okay, so you've got, you've got the sort of the British and let's say the sort of um, upper class Indians who are working more closely with the British. And, and you mentioned how regional Indian food is, of course. Mm-hmm. But India's also divided very much on on kind of class lines and caste lines. Was cooking with recipes and cooking with ingredients like tomatoes, was that a high caste activity? And what were the lower castes doing at this same sort of time? It is, it's overwhelmingly cookbooks have been written by upper caste uh, people, Um, often women from elite families or and also men from elite families and the cookbooks say of the early 20th century were very preoccupied with hosting dinner parties and how to present special dishes um, and then around the, the mid 20th century you start getting this these nationalist ideas around what is Indian food and Indian cooking and how special Indian cooking is but again the the people who have access to you know, the, or the ability to write written texts have largely been upper caste. Um, and so a lot of the cookbooks just are heavily, heavily caste and class. At that time, of course, the lower castes, the Dalits, probably couldn't read and none of them were following recipes anyway. Sucharita Kanjilal pointed me to an interesting aspect of how things have changed. A recent cookbook that was written in Marathi by a Dalit writer, um, his name is Shahu Pature, and he actually makes this very provocative argument where he says that the recipe itself, as as a way of thinking about food, already presumes a certain amount of class and caste privilege because it is indexed on the idea that there are delicious foods you want to be able to reproduce all the time and that there is a cuisine that you want to preserve and that you have time and access to a, a set of ingredients that you actually want to go out and buy. And and he was and the, the the argument he makes is that just even simply as a concept, if you are a, a Dalit laborer working the farms or working in the fields, uh, you neither have the kind of time and en- energy to take on a kind of aesthetic project like a cookbook, but also that the idea of cuisine itself is not rooted in some sort of, you know, uh, cultural um, glory that you're trying to preserve. The The idea of cooking and eating is trying to see what you have available to you at that time in the conditions of scarcity and what you're able to do with it, uh, rather than trying to uh, reproduce something that is desirable, necessarily. So basically, <laughs> whatever you've got to hand you cook exactly whatever you've got to hand and as much time as you might have and so in the recipes that he puts in his book he says you know there's no there's no real thing as a dalit recipe uh, uh, you know but there's a set of logics and instructions that i can give you 
which says where a recipe would read something like if you have mutton which is goat meat here um try and cook the mutton in its own fat because oil is an expensive commodity and then among these spices that you might have access to try the, these combinations and cook it over a slow flame for a long time and eat it with the kind of grain that's available to you so it's much more dynamic in a way that recipes are not often recipes are, are meant to make things a little more static and reproducible it's kind of fascinating because that's almost the approach that say a competition tv chef would adopt you know here are your ingredients make something with it that's it's a really it's a wonderful interesting observation the kind of the chal- like a, a top chef challenge of scarcity and and what you can produce out of it which of course is a also a way of saying how do you produce high taste out of something that scares which is very different from the political project of, of the person who wrote this wonderful uh, dalit cookbook and tv chefs have influenced tastes in india just as they have around the world and they were actually very instrumental in producing new kinds of tastes in in kind of middle class indian consciousness um if you if you look at the kinds of recipes they were making in the 90s uh it was a fascinating mix of so called traditional indian foods but they were a lot of them were really geared towards aspirational international cuisines so there would be completely vegetarian episodes but on mexican foods or uh baking became a very aspirational popular thing uh, european style baking which is just not a concept which was which has not been a concept in indian kitchens because indian kitchens don't often have ovens uh but they really started promoting these little toaster ovens in which you can make cakes and cupcakes and and maybe even breads and so those were very popular um and and they continue to be popular but at the same time the digital turn has really like mm, i won't say democratized but has really spread that out in the many more forms of indian cooking that have become popular and not just uh, celebrity chefs but you know housewife bloggers who became really big in, on youtube which kind of brings us back full circle to the butter chicken lady and a final worry about this new recipe for a new dish based on a new ingredient why is it called butter chicken not tomato chicken i think that's an excellent question i i can't say i have a a knowledgeable answer to that as much as um i would say that my my guess would be one is that butter is the more high taste ingredient in that dish uh because tomatoes are used in all kinds of indian mm, stewed curry like dishes and the, and butter is the unique ingredient in that dish and of course indians have a kind of premium on butter because it has a lot of religious ritual significance in in hindu culture especially butter and ghee are seen as very very desirable and delicious dishes so if i had to guess that it would be that butter makes it sound kind of fancier and nicer than just saying tomato chicken because tomatoes and many other chicken dishes too sucharita kanjilal i'll put a link to her article in gastronomica in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com so i think it may be behind a paywall I'll say I do love these stories about how some food makes its way to a new place 
and then finds itself accepted, adopted and adapted till nobody gives a second thought to where it came from. And as for the recipe, I don't have an instant pot, but I do have a battered and stained copy of Madhur Jaffrey's Indian cookery book for the BBC, so there might just be some butter chicken in our future one of these nights. If you enjoy Eat This Podcast, please consider leaving a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find the show. And as ever, my thanks to those listeners who support the show with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. Thank you. I'll be back soon with another episode. So till then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.